Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today we have author Jeff Gold back for a second round. Jeff is a collector of music memorabilia and a retired music industry exec, as well as a Grammy-winning art director for one of his album covers. We first spoke to Jeff about his extraordinary book, Sitting In, the jazz clubs of the 1940s and 50s. And it was only then that I realized it was the same Jeff Gold behind a book that I was dying to read. So from jazz to total chaos, the story of the Stooges as told by Iggy Pop. Welcome back, Jeff. Great to be here. So I mentioned that you are a collector of some amazing music memorabilia. And that is, in fact, the connection between these two books, can you tell our listeners the concept behind these books? Yeah, well, um, sitting in my jazz club book came when I found a collection of souvenir photos from jazz clubs of the 40s and 50s. And I just kept staring at them and looking into the detail of them and thinking they showed African-Americans celebrating this incredible music at these legendary jazz clubs in a way that I'd never seen before. The Stooges book, which came first, came out of my own and a close friend of mine's collections of Stooges memorabilia. We had very large collections of Iggy and Stooges stuff, and he had done a number of books and kept pestering me to do a book on the Stooges based on our collections. And I kept saying, deflecting, saying, no, I wasn't interested in doing a, another book. I'd done a previous book. But one night it kind of came to me about how this could be both fairly straightforward and really interesting. Between the two of ourselves, we had an enormous amount of Stooges stuff, a lot of which was one of a kind, things that nobody had seen that came from a collection of Danny Fields, the guy who signed the Stooges to Electra, uh, and we had a few other big archive collections. And I thought, you know, I'd worked with Iggy when I was at A&M Records, and we got along very well, and I had this idea that popped into my mind that we'd pick 100 items that kind of told the story of the Stooges visually, and get Iggy to look at each one and comment on them. So it would be kind of an oral history through video and text of this band based around these objects. You know, these books have so much content, as you mentioned, and and that's such an interesting and visceral way to jog the memory. What was Iggy's reaction? I got in touch with him and pitched the idea to him, and he thought it was interesting and worthwhile, and we made a deal with his lawyer. The idea was 
uh, my friend and I would go to Florida where Iggy lived and uh, show him these hundred things and record his reactions. And he asked me if I could send the things beforehand to kind of jog his memory. And I said, sure. So we sent colored Xeroxes of these hundred things we had identified. And I had done an enormous amount of research before going down there. I read probably 10 books on him or the Stooges. Uh, there really weren't books on the Stooges, but I read a lot of books on him and interviews, magazine articles, and things like that on the Stooges. And really done my homework. So I knew he wasn't making this stuff up. He just had an incredible recall, which is all the more remarkable when you consider that this guy physically beat himself up more than any musician ever during his performances and took countless amounts of drugs and alcohol for many, many years. But he just has an incredible mind and incredible recall. One of the things that is fascinating is that, because that's exactly what he says. He goes, I have no memory of that at all. And then the story just moves on. And it's just so yeah. interesting because you're right. It's just a moment of truth for him. But this is the book on the Stooges. And, you know, when I grew up listening to them in the seventh or eighth grade, eighth, ninth grade, whatever it was, it was very much a secret club, you know. Very few of my friends listened to the Stooges, and Cream Magazine was probably the biggest place that I could find out anything about them. And uh, it was so much fun to read and then also to relive it kind of through Iggy's eyes. Thank you. I mean, it was the timing was odd but worked for me. The fact that Ron Ashton had died, Scott Ashton had died, Iggy clearly was thinking a lot about those times, and I was someone who... He knew personally, having worked with me at A&M Records and liked, and I'd interviewed him for my previous book on classic rock records, and he really liked the way that came out and thought that the interview with him was great. So I was kind of a safe choice coming at a time where he'd been thinking a lot about the band and their legacy. And I think that once he was done, he could kind of close that book, to forgive the pun. <laughs> he'd also you know, been working on and off with Jim Jarmusch on this documentary and got Scott Ashton to do probably the last interview he, he'd ever done. So it was kind of a wistful time where he was doing a lot of looking back and thinking about that time. And he was the last man standing incredibly uh, from this very important band. Yeah, incredibly is the right word. The band was from Ann Arbor, Michigan, which was pretty avant-garde for the time. Can you talk about, you know, their beginning? Yeah, it, it was. It, it's uh, a town that the University of Michigan is in, and there was a lot of avant-garde activity. There was a record store called Discount Records that Iggy worked at, and he said he learned so much about music because somebody would be playing a classical record, then somebody would be playing an avant-garde classical record, then somebody would be playing a deep blues record, then a rock record. So he got a lot of his taste out of that. It was kind of a hotbed for bands and for appreciation of off-the-beaten-track music. Iggy's first band was called the Iguanas, and he was the drummer, and uh, became known as Iggy as kind of a derisive nickname when he got to his next band, the Prime Movers, because he'd been in the Iguanas, they called him Iggy. After the Prime Movers broke up, the Stooges formed, and Iggy was the driving force behind the Stooges. He talks about how he wanted to start a band. He was interested in Ron Ashton, who played guitar, and Scott Ashton, who he had taught drums. These guys weren't that motivated, but he was motivated. So he would get up every day, walk 15 minutes to the bus stop, take a 45-minute bus ride, then walk another 15 minutes to the Ashton's house. They were living with their parents. And he'd have to throw pebbles at their window to wake them up. 
and they'd open the window, and the only way they'd come down is if he'd promised to get them high with marijuana. And so he'd get them high, and then they could rehearse for half an hour or 45 minutes because until they lost interest. So he was just push, push, pushing the whole time while these guys were kind of reluctant co-conspirators. But it was a hotbed of experimentation and people doing interesting things with music. Yeah, very experimental, which I didn't know. And there's some great photographs in your book. There's one Iggy with white face, and then the band would play huge oil drums and fog horns and things like that. Yeah, when they first started out, he wasn't the singer. He was a keyboard player, but he was kind of the, uh, to do a pun on the name of his previous band, the prime mover in it all. And he would play a wearing blender, and before drums, they had these oil drums that Scott Ashton would bang on, and vacuum cleaners mic'd up, and their first couple gigs were as kind of an avant-garde, vocal-less band that was based on all this noise and instrumentation from everyday objects that they would attempt to control and play. There's a photograph of them coming out of a cornfield, and Iggy commented on it. He kind of compared it to something that might be out there during the grunge period, didn't he? Yeah, he thought, you know, it was a picture taken behind one of their communal band houses, and they're standing among these tall, towering corn plants. And Iggy said, it kind of reminds me of Nirvana in, in the attitude and ethos of the band, you know, not just the way that they're dressed in flannels and jeans, but the fact that they have attitude kind of seeping out of them. And I thought that was a really prescient observation and something I hadn't thought about. It, it really was. And, and, you know, those are throughout the book where you just kind of like shake your head and smile because, I mean, he clearly is tuned in. And uh, it must have been fascinating to see his reaction to this stuff, you know. The thing that amazed me was how much he remembered. Right. You, you could almost see him being transported back to that time from these pictures and talking about these things with people who clearly had spent an enormous amount of time researching it. I mean, it wasn't like a casual interview for a newspaper where somebody may have read the bio. Right. I had done probably a hundred hours of research by the time I got to him about this very short period of time in his life. So can you give us the dime version of the Ashton brothers and Dave Alexander, who would be the other Stooges proper when they became the Stooges. I mean, it was a fascinating dynamic. There were a couple of great quotes that I used from Ron Ashton, who said, Scott, his brother, was kind of the stoned punk guy who would uh, hang out with the juvenile delinquents. Iggy was kind of the more straight frat boy high school guy. And Ron was the weird guy. And that Dave was the true rebel who played a big part in perverting everybody. And I ran those by Iggy, and Iggy said, yeah, that was pretty much right. So they were these four different personalities, and even though the Ashton brothers were brothers and lived together, they were very, very different. And Scott was much more taciturn, and Ron was much more expansive. But it was this oddball combination of elements, Iggy kind of pushing these guys, trying to convince them that they could form a band that would be a viable band, and this could be much more than just a hobby we're speaking with author Jeff Gold about his book, Total Chaos, The Story of the Stooges, as told by Iggy Pop. So soon enough, the legendary, you mentioned Danny Fields. He is a legend in the music business, and he signs both the MC5 and the Stooges to Elektra. And it was, was it on the same day or the same trip? Yeah, it was the same trip. Um, some guys in New York had a radio show called Cocaine Karma, and they had hipped 
Danny to the MC5, who had released a couple of independent singles at that time. Danny was the so-called house hippie at Electra. He was the non-wearing-a-suit-to-work guy who was their attempt at connecting with youth culture. So he went down to Ann Arbor to meet the MC5, who lived in a commune and were managed by this kind of Svengali figure, John Sinclair. And uh, they said, hey, you should check out our little brother band, the Stooges, who they kind of liked and were friendly with and played on a lot of the same bills with and kind of took care of. And so Danny went to see a Stooges show, which was evidently very chaotic. And uh, Iggy was wearing a maternity dress and white face. It was really a crazy show. And Danny uh, went backstage and supposedly said to Iggy, you're a star, I want to sign you, I'm from Elector Records. And Iggy kind of said, talk to my manager, thinking this was just some guy feeding him a line. But in fact, it turned out to be true. And Danny called Jack Holzman, the president of Elektra, back in New York and said, "Uh, not only do I want to sign the MC5, who I came down for, but I found another band I want to sign too. And Jack Holzman said, how excited are you? And Danny told him he was very excited. Jack gave him a financial figure. And said, if you can get him for this much, you can sign him. And he was able to. Pretty great trip down there for a couple of Oh, no kidding. And just two legendary groups between the MC5 and, you know, limited output, but just hugely, hugely influential. Exactly. So in 1969, their debut, The Stooges, is released, and it sold pretty well. It's now considered a groundbreaking album, which I fully agree with. But I'm I'm wondering, what was the take at the time? I, I know you have so many articles and reviews in your collection and they're in the book as well, but... When that came out, was it is beloved, if that's the right word? No, I think it was polarizing. Uh, most people didn't know what to make of it because there really hadn't been anything. You know, it really is the birth of punk. Mm-hmm. And nobody had put out a record sounding anything like that before. Maybe the Velvet Underground is the closest, but this was more uh, kind of banal, effortly banal, and uh, provocative. So, you know, the mainstream media was not into this at all, mm. but there were people like John Mendelssohn and Lenny Kay and Lester Bangs who were influential critics who did get it and liked it and were advocates of the band early on. It certainly wasn't anything remotely approaching a radio hit or a critical hit. The people who did embrace it were more of outliers. Well, you know, you mentioned punk rock and the three songs that come to my mind, 1969, uh, Now I Want to Be Your Dog and No Fun. The Stooges had really, really found their sound here. But it's funny because just lyrically and attitudinally, as well as musically, it it was just a, a groundbreaking record. Absolutely. And I think it was literally the shot across the bow that created punk at bands like the Ramones and the Sex Pistols covered the Stooges, talked about how influential the Stooges were. Who's to say that if the Stooges had never existed, punk wouldn't have existed. But I think it would have been a very different thing if it had without those two records, Funhouse and the first Stooges album. They're incredibly important and kind of set the template for what followed. Funny, ironically, the album comes out the same week as another major musical event, right? Woodstock. (laughs) Yeah. Couldn't be further from what Woodstock was about. It's kind of ironic. Yeah, it's very ironic. Can you tell our listeners there's a great quote in your book from Iggy, and I think it's called the 100 Words quote, which I found mind-blowing. Can you tell that? Yeah. Something to the effect of there were probably only 100 words on the first Stooges album, so he wanted to make each one count. (laughs) When he was a kid, he used to watch Soupy Sales, this uh, comedian from our generation on television. 
And Soupy Seals would say to his fans, kids, send me a postcard, but keep it short. I don't have all day to read these things. That really resonated with Iggy, and he really wanted his music to be short and direct and to the point. And even though people like Dylan, who we admired, had a facility for long, verbose, abstract songs, Iggy felt like he was best when he really boiled everything down to its essence, which he did beautifully. And Soupy Sales was an influence on Iggy, who knew? Exactly. So let's talk about the album cover, the first one. Iggy did not like it. Why? He felt like the Stooges were all about action. You know, even John Cale, the, who produced the first album, at some point said, you know, these guys play a lot better when you're jumping around. So he got Iggy to jump around in the studio. And so when they went to do the album cover shoot, Joel Brodsky, the electric in-house photographer, wanted to do a nicely posed album cover. And Iggy felt like that was not what this band was about. This band was about action. So during the photo shoot, he attempted to jump over the band with a running start, but hit the concrete floor of the photo studio and cut his chin up and had to be rushed to the emergency hospital to get stitches. But because they were on a timeline and a budget, after he'd had stitches, they took him back to the photo session and uh, did some more posed photographs. And the photo that's on the cover of the first Stooges album had to be retouched to put a shadow kind of thing over Iggy's stitched up chin. That, that's an amazing story. And I spent quite a bit of time after I read that studying that album cover. And you can definitely see, you know, that uh, they did a great job pre-Photoshop. You know, it's, it's funny knowing that story. I actually saw at one point the photograph with the stitches unretouched. Oh, really? But we couldn't get it to use in the book, unfortunately. Oh, man. Wow. That's very cool. So the live shows at this point are legendary for many reasons, uh, stitches notwithstanding. There's the first stage dive ever, bare chests, ripped pants, hot candle wax, and Iggy carrying a girl away on his shoulders at a college gig. Oh, he really felt like this band could be his ticket out of Ann Arbor and a boring life working in a gas station. He really felt like he had to up the ante and get everybody's attention. He did an early show with the Fugs and another one with the Mother's Invention at the Grande Ballroom. He felt like those bands had theatrical elements that really captured people's attention and uh, were kind of an inspiration to him to become more and more wild and to use the white paint on his face and dress up in outrageous outfits and to roll around on the ground and uh, be both provocative but also noteworthy. Um, I think that was a big motivation for him. And he also kind of lost control. I mean, Well, the Cincinnati Pop Festival was famous for some of his antics as well, right? Yeah, so Iggy tells his story. He was probably the biggest crowd they'd ever played before. He didn't realize it was going to be, but when they got there, they found out it was going to be televised. And it was the tallest stage they'd ever played on. Their feet were where everybody's head was. Iggy was on two hits of acid, so he was feeling no pain either. <laughs> During this this show, the, the crowd was kind of surging toward him, and he realized, you know, I could probably walk out on these people's hands, and they'd probably hold me up. And uh, because of the state he was in, he decided to give it a try, and uh, in fact, walked off the stage into the crowd, and they held him up, and there are many famous pictures of it, just Google Stooges at Cincinnati Pop Festival, and there's video footage of it as well. And he walked onto the crowd and in, invented crowd surfing during that moment. And somebody handed him a jar of peanut butter, 
and he started sticking his hand in and smearing it all over his body. Uh, and all this was televised nationally. <laughs> so this got the, the Stooges a lot of attention. Even three or four years later, when I had the opportunity to see the Stooges, uh, it was, this is a guy who's crazy, cuts himself with glass and smears peanut butter all over his body. So it did exactly what Iggy intended in getting them attention and elevating them among, no pun intended in this case, elevating them uh, above all the other acts. Well, it is amazing. His instincts were, were right on, I think, in terms of what he felt they were about and important. Those photographs of the Cincinnati Pop Festival, everybody should Google that. I did. And they're incredible. They're just amazing. They are incredible. It's almost unbelievable. Yep. Yep. In 1970, the Stooges head west and to record my favorite of the Stooges trilogy, which is Funhouse. I was stunned to hear Iggy recount how funk was a huge influence on this record. But going back and having a listening, he's right, of course, but that never occurred to me. I mean, I think they really wanted to make a different record, a more aggressive record. And it was his idea to record it live. And he wasn't happy with or the riffs Ron Ashton was coming up with. So once again, Iggy is the prime mover and is kind of pushing the other guys in the band to up their game. And uh, he gave Ron Ashton a, a suggestion to play a note as if it was being played by Booker T and the MGs or a riff by Booker T and the MGs. And he brought in Steve McKay, who was a friend of theirs from Ann Arbor, to play saxophone and free jazz on a couple of tracks. So uh, it, was a, it was an opportunity for him to keep evolving, keep upping the ante, and keep pushing the other guys to do more and become more aggressive. And uh, I think he, never being satisfied with what they were doing, felt like they really needed a more aggressive, different record. And if the other guys weren't as motivated as he was, he would will that into existence as he had done before. You know, and it's worth noting, too, as your book points out, and as Iggy himself in your book points out, he was incredibly adventurous musically. He listened to a very, very, very wide array of, of music. So the funk that was going on at the time probably seeped in there. Absolutely. And he, he ascribes a lot of that to working at that record store. And each guy would get their chance at the turntable to play in-store music. And so he was exposed to this incredible variety of different things that the average fan wouldn't be. 1970 was a great year, and there's some insanely cool pictures in your book from the Electric Circus in New York at this time. Yeah, that's a really, <laughs> that's a gig where he had silver hair, and it almost looked like it was melting silver face, and then he had glitter on his face. And I asked him about that, and he said he used this aerosol spray-on hair color called Nestle's Streaks and Tips. That, that was another thing. You're asking him about something from almost 50 years before, and he remembers the brand name of the stuff that he used to spray in his hair off the top of his head. And he described how you could spray this stuff on your hair to turn your hair silver, but it stayed with you for three or four days. You couldn't get it off. It would start to melt under the lights and run down his face and then get all over the pillow and the sheets in your bed. I'm sure he was none the worse for wear on substances, too. He put this glitter on him, and, and the pictures are incredible, but he also told us just these funny stories about trying to get it off uh, once the show was over, and that was not a simple project. Now comes the first change in the band, with Dave Alexander leaving and the arrival of James Williamson on guitar, which moves Ron Ashton over to the bass. Yeah, there was a, a kind of a fluid period of time where 
Dave Alexander just was really having difficulties with substances and uh, from Iggy's perspective was really dropping the ball musically. So they fired him. At first, one of their roadies, a guy named Jimmy Recca, played bass. And Iggy wasn't feeling that Ron Ashton was living up to his potential, too. So he wanted to add another guitarist. And he had heard about this guy, James Williamson. So they added him to the Stooges as well. So it became a five-piece. And then there was kind of a revolving cast of adjunct members for a short period of time. And it ended up with a four-piece again with Williamson playing guitar and Ron Ashton playing bass. And then occasionally a live keyboard player. And, and in some senses, Ron was demoted, but in some senses, Ron was the mother bass player of all time as well. <laughs> and uh, it really worked musically. Was this the heaviest period of drug usage for the band? Probably so. I mean, <laughs> there was always a lot of that going on, but Williamson brought in a, a whole nother element of that. Uh, I mean, I don't know that anybody was keeping score then or now, but it was a dark period. There's so many great visuals in this book, but a favorite of mine is from this period, and it's a poster from the Hollywood Palladium show where the design is perhaps only bettered by the band lineup. But there's a caveat, right? The caveat is the show never happened. It's a great silver foil poster, silkscreen on silver foil, but the poster and another handbill for that are all that exists because Stooges broke up two months before that gig and it never happened. Oh, wow. So people, if you're listening uh, and you want to see Iggy with silver hair and glitter and this band poster that never happened, you need to go out and get Jeff's book because that's the only <laughs> place you're going to see it. We're speaking with Jeff Gold, who is the author of Total Chaos, the story of the Stooges as told by Iggy Pop. Soon enough, uh, Main Man, which was David Bowie's management firm, steps in and Iggy and David had become friendly. And uh, what was that all about? Well, Iggy had been a favorite of Bowie's for a long time. There was a, a New Musical Express or Melody Maker, one of the English music papers, had a poll, and Iggy was named Bowie's favorite vocalist in about 1969 before he had any international profile. So Danny Fields is at Max's Kansas City in New York one night and meets Bowie, who's starting to generate some attention but isn't yet a big star. Bowie's talking about Iggy, who happens to be at Danny's house at that point watching It's a Wonderful Life on TV mm. without a record deal. And Danny's sensing, wow, this guy David Bowie who's happening is really into Iggy. I've got to get Iggy to come down here and meet him. And he calls Iggy, and Iggy doesn't want to come to Max's Kansas City because he doesn't want to walk out on It's a Wonderful Life. And Danny has to really kind of say, get your ass down here immediately. This could be good for your career. And he meets Bowie, and Bowie is really interested in him and has a big management company backing him and convinces his manager or tells his manager to sign Iggy as a management client, which he does. And because of uh, all the momentum that's happening with Bowie's career in England and starting to in America, they're able to get a deal with Columbia Records based on having David Bowie's management backing him. Iggy at this point is addicted to heroin, so they send him back to Ann Arbor to clean up, which he does with the help of his father, who knows a friendly uh, pharmacist who gets him methadone and Iggy kicks. Uh, he goes over to England, calls for with Williamson. They call for Scott and Ron. They come over and they record Raw Power there. Yeah, and that, you know, I love Funhouse, but Raw Power is one of a kind. And uh, there's a lot 
of kind of, you know, competing opinions and strong opinions out there about the mix and Bowie had mixed the record. Did Iggy have any thoughts on that? Well, you know, Bowie mixed it with sitting next to Iggy very quickly in an afternoon. And Iggy was never happy with it, but you know, Bowie was a big name, uh, had become really big by that time. Columbia Records was excited. They wanted to get it out. So the record just got steamrolled through with that mix, which Iggy was never happy with. And years later, he was able to go back and remix it in the way he wanted to and get that released as well. And they both have their merits. And I wasn't involved in the creation of a record. And far be it from me to second guess either Bowie or Iggy's point of view, these guys both having created plenty of great art without me. So uh, they're both available for anybody who wants. I was just going to say, it's very interesting to go back and listen to them because I remember when I was young and bought Raw Power, it didn't really sound like anything else. It was kind of thin. And and, and then I listened to the other versions and I'm like, oh, wow, I kind of missed that original <laughs> version. So, you know, sometimes the first version of art is always the best, I guess. But um, Exactly. You mentioned Columbia. They had Iggy remix it as well. And he was under contract with Elektra when this was recorded, correct? And Elektra opted out of Raw Power? Um, what happened was Elektra had the rights to make a third record. They sent William Harvey, the vice president of Elektra and the art director, down to review his new songs with Don Gallucci. They went to see the Stooges in Ann Arbor at their uh, communal living space, Stooge Manor. There are a variety of reasons that have been given for why Electra decided not to exercise their option and make a third Stooges record, but they did decide not to make a third Stooges record, which left the Stooges free to sign. But funny enough, when I bought Danny Field's papers, among them were uh, some letters from Electra saying, we're going to drop the Stooges, but we want to exercise our right to sign Iggy as a solo artist. And Danny, for whatever reason, never pursued getting those papers signed. Thus, Iggy eventually was free and clear to uh, go record for another label. It's amazing. And after that, that was it. After Raw Power, you know, the Stooges imploded or exploded and went up in a ball of fire. Yeah, I think they kind of imploded. I mean, I saw them during that period at the Whiskey Go-Go in Los Angeles, and they played a show that couldn't have lasted half an hour. And Iggy, who looked very, very high, came out, and sang two songs that weren't on the album, one of which was about workers in the Hollywood Hills trying to drive him crazy. <laughs> and uh, kind of was having trouble standing up and eventually collapsed. And I believe it was Ron Ashton who carried him off stage, and that was it. Wow. So on, on one level, it was kind of fascinating because we were going to see this guy who was famous for me cutting himself up with broken glass and spreading peanut butter on himself, doing this you know half-baked show where he was wearing a pair of blue Lurex bikini panties threaded through a mic stand that he was humping and then collapsing after half an hour. And on another level, it wasn't very good. It was great as spectacle and not very good as music. But that was another period of great drug abuse by this band. They were unreliable. Main Man eventually dropped them because of all the drug abuse. So they didn't have management. They were having gigs harder to get going. They were wallowing in this cycle of drug abuse, and they eventually just kind of ground to a halt. Well, you've mentioned a few times how the clarity that Iggy had when you talked to him, and he gives his, his version of the Stooges' legacy, which is great, and it's amazing. I have to ask, you're a very knowledgeable fan, what's your take on their legacy? I think they invented punk, and I think they left behind three fantastic records. 
you know, I worked in a used record store, so I was able to find the long out of print Funhouse and first album easily and love those more than I love Raw Power. But Raw Power was in print and available the whole time. Mm. And I find if I talk to people who are a little bit younger than me, like Johnny Marr from The Smiths, who I interview in the book about the Stooges, they love Raw Power best because that's the first album they found. And it's the first album that, that they were able to get that was available. And so that was kind of their entry point, whereas my entry point was the first two records. Right. I think my entry point was the first record as well. And uh, um, they're all fascinating. And, um, you know, I should point out that you have some uh, some really famous people in there that remark on, on Iggy and the Stooges in the book. And Yeah, I did interviews. I wanted to talk to people who were well-known of them. So I interviewed Dave Grohl from Nirvana and the Foo Fighters. Uh, I interviewed Johnny Marr from the Smiths and Joan Jett, all of whom are deeply in awe of Iggy and were profoundly influenced by him. Well, it's another beautiful, informative book from Jeff Gold, just full of surprises. And um, I do have to say, you know, I only discovered the incredible print on the hardcover underneath the paper flap after I'd read the entire book. And I had the book sitting there. And for some reason, at that point, I take it off. And the design on the hardcover book is really, really wonderful as, uh, as well. And our listeners can take a peek at the book at www.totalchaosbook.com. And if you're an Iggy fan, just do yourself a favor and buy the book because it's it's one of a kind, Jeff. Thank you so very much. All right. That's been Jeff Gold. He's done another beautiful book. Uh, you keep saying you're not going to do another book, but uh, is there anything on the horizon music-wise that you're doing? Sleep. <laughs> All right. Well, Godspeed then, Jeff. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Mm-hmm.